Well, it's Valentine's Day, and the world is thinking upon this idea of love. I thought it would be appropriate to speak on the same topic, although I want to talk to you about the love of God this morning. And I've noticed something in the church, a trend, particularly over the last three decades or so, where the love of God is exaggerated to a point where that's his only characteristic. In fact, if you ask the average unbeliever on the streets about the love of God or what they know about God, they will say, well, I know God is all loving. And in fact, it's this all lovingness about God that causes the sinner to be comfortable in his sin because he thinks, well, if God is so loving, of course, he's going to overlook my faults when I stand before him. I believe this is a caricature of the God of the Bible. You know what a caricature is. You go to the state fair and you sit down and pay someone $10 and they draw a picture of you on a surfboard or something and they exaggerate your features. If you have a semi-big nose, it's a really big nose. There's a caricature in the church today about God's love. And it takes love and it brings it up as his only attribute, as his sole attribute, And we know God is loving, but the Bible speaks about a particular love of God. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning, the particular love of God. Many Christian ministries and uh, products that I've seen lately on YouTube, Christian music, portrays God as a lovesick, desperate God who's just crying out for sinners to accept him, to pay attention to him. And you think, oh, poor God. Beloved, this is not the God of the Bible. If anything, the prevailing attribute of God is his holiness. When Isaiah got a vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees a vision of the glory of God, and even the angels, the cherubim who are flying around the throne, would not even gaze upon God, but they cover him. They cover their eyes with with their wings, and they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But you see, the world doesn't want a holy God. They want a all-loving God, a God that will not condemn them. I like what Dr. Robert Morey says, the average American pictures God as a toothless grandma, harmless You know how grandmas are. You go to grandma, grandma will give you anything you want. Well, this philosophy of the age has crept into the church. And so some of these Christian songs and ideas, I believe, portray God and the love of God incorrectly. And this is what I want to talk to you about this morning, the glorious love of God, the particular love of God. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. I'm going to have to set the stage for you, what's going on at this time. The kingdom of Israel has been divided into north and south. The northern kingdom of Israel has just been conquered by Assyria. God has punished the northern kingdom for their idolatry. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to preach to the southern kingdom to tell them their judgment is coming because the southern kingdom too are lost in idolatry. You heard it this morning in the reading. God, through the prophet, is mocking the person who takes a piece of wood that he just cut down, uses half of it to burn and to cook food for himself, and the other half he fashions into an idol. 
This is what's happening in the time that Isaiah is preaching. So Babylon is coming, that's the message. And God is going to expose the, the futility of worshiping idols. So Isaiah uses what's called trial speech in what we're going to look at today. God is pictured as the prosecuting attorney and the judge. And the defense and their lawyers are the idols. And the jury is the people. So let's pick this up in Isaiah 40. We'll back up a little bit. Isaiah 40, verse 18. So you picture this now. This is a trial. And Yahweh, the covenant God, gets up to speak. He's the prosecuting attorney. He says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts it, casts for it silver chains. He, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Can't have your idol falling over. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Now turn to Isaiah 41. Starting in verse 21, he turns to the defense. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome and declare to us the things to come. He's taunting the idols, you see. Tell us what happened in the past. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Now you can imagine, in the courtroom there's a dead silence. Everyone's looking at the defense attorney's. One of them turns and whispers in the other one's ear. He nods. A briefcase emerges from under the table, and all eyes are on the defense. And as he opens the briefcase, it's empty. It's empty! There's nothing there. They're idols. They have nothing. They can do nothing. Turn the page, verse 40, or chapter 43. Here, Yahweh calls his defense. He's going to call his people to testify. Now, his people are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. But they know enough of what he's done in the past, and he's foretold the future. So he calls deaf and blind people. Blind people to to, to foretell what they've seen, deaf people to foretell what they've heard. Can you imagine? 43 verse 8, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. 
You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? This is the context for what we're going to look at this morning. God is not happy with his people. In 42.18, the passage right before what we're going to look at, he calls them again, you're deaf, you're blind. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? So when we get to our, our passage this morning, chapter 43, and we read the first words, but now, thus says the Lord, you expect, here it is, it's coming, and we're in trouble. You expect judgment, you expect wrath, you expect condemnation. Let's read it together. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One, your Savior, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. People often say that the God of the Old Testament is not like the God of the New Testament, and that usually involves not understanding the context. You see, God gives people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to turn from their ways. But here is a glimpse. In the midst of this darkness, prior to this, there's 39 chapters of just judgment is coming. And here's this burst of light that comes forth. And God says, I'm going to take care of you. Now, I want to talk about the structure here for a minute. This is called, um, there's a literary device that some of the Old Testament writers used in the poetic literature prophecy called a chiasm. If you can see it on the screen there, it's an A-B-C-B-A construction. In other words, the verses on top mirror the verses on the bottom. Here's what I mean. I don't know if you can read that or not, but you can see it in your own Bible. Verse 1, he says, 
I am the Lord who created you, he who formed you. And look at verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created, whom I formed and made. If you look at verse 2, it mirrors verses 5 and 6. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And in verse 5, I am with you. I will gather you. And then in the very center, in verses 3 and 4, in verse 3 you have, I give Egypt as your ransom. I give uh, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And then in verse 4, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for you. So what's the purpose of this literary device called a chiasm? The purpose is to point you to the center. It's narrowing your scope to show the reader this is the point of the passage. I know it's hard to see. It's pointing to the verse that says, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. So as the reader is, is picking up on this, he can see this, this, this mirroring, this narrowing down, and it gives the person the, 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 the burden of the passage. So everything before it is flowing to this point. Everything after it is flowing from this point. This is the point of the passage. So this is how we're going to do the outline of the text this morning. We're going to put it in three categories. Past, future, and present. So start with me in verse 1. The past, God's love initiated. How does God prove his love? He does it by demonstrating what he's done for them in the past. He says, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. He points to his creation of them. Now, it's the same kind of language you would use if you were to create an idol for yourself. You would create and form an idol out of wood. But God turns that around and says, these idols are not your God. I created and formed you. So he takes them back to the beginning. Not just creation of them as, as, as humankind, but creation of them as a nation. He tells them, fear not. Why would they fear? Well, we know by looking at the context. They should fear because they were found guilty at, at Jehovah's trial. They were guilty. Their idols are found as non-gods, so they have every right to fear. But he tells them, do not be afraid. And he says, I've redeemed you. Now, this is most likely pointing to the Exodus. You remember, the Israelites for 400 years were slaves in Egypt. And God set his love upon them and called them out of this nation. And that's when he made a covenant with them. And he covenanted with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. So he's pointing to his redemption of them. It's interesting that God doesn't speak to any other nation this way. So this idea that the God of the Bible loves all people without distinction equivalently, equally, is not a biblical concept. Do you know he did not even provide a ransom for the firstborn of Egypt? Remember when he had them take a lamb and slaughter it and put the blood on the doorposts? So when the angel of death came by and saw the blood of the lamb, which is a type of Christ, they would not be destroyed. He didn't do that for Egypt. Why not? Why did he do it for Israel? They were both idolatrous people. He loved Israel. He called Israel. Look at verse uh, 
Last part of verse 1. I've called you by name. You are mine. Now, why did God do this? It's not because they were special. Why did he choose them? Because he loves them. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has not chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, or the Lord has chosen you, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So he's saying, it wasn't something in you that I chose you and called you. So why does he love Israel then? Well, he chose them. Why did he choose them? Because he loves them. It's called a tautology. It doesn't answer the question. If your child comes to you and says, why is grass green? And you say, well, it's greenness makes it green. Well, you're not answering the question. So why does God love Israel? Because he loves Israel. We're not told. They were a pagan nation just as much as, uh, as the Egypt was, but he called them out and he set his love upon them. I know what people think at this point. They think, well, that's not fair. That's unjust. God's supposed to love everyone without distinction. That's what God does, right? But you see, that's the world's philosophy of God that has crept into the church. People didn't believe this in the church 200 years ago, 500 years ago. If anything, the wrath of God was emphasized. That's all you heard was the wrath of God. And there was little room for mercy. Now, that's not right either, but the pendulum has swung the other way. And it's all the love of God. Another example would be how the philosophy of the world gets in our thinking. How many of you, when you think about heaven, you think of kind of disembodied spirits and clouds and this ethereal thing and Enya's playing in the background? <laughs> no, heaven is going to be a world just like this is a world. That's Platonic philosophy, this idea that, that matter is somehow bad and spirit is the only thing that's good. So this concept that we have of the love of God, it must be defined by Scripture. If it's not defined by Scripture, it's going to be defined by the world. And here's, a, here's an indicator. If, you're, if some idea you have some, uh, of a characteristic of God is the same as the world thinks of God that way, that usually means there's a problem. Because the world, they serve idols. And the church has adopted these ideas. Does that mean God doesn't love the unbeliever? I'm getting there. We'll get there. So when he says, I've called you by name, you are mine. This is God's calling. He calls the people. God in eternity past has chosen a people for himself and he calls them just as he chose Israel. Jesus walked through and he called the disciples by name. You come, you come. And they followed. And he does the same thing today. He goes through the earth and he's calling men unto himself. How does he do it? Through the preaching of the gospel. So when the gospel is not preached, no hearts are being converted. It's, it's a silencing. There's, there's not a calling that's going forth. Look at verse 7. This is mirroring verse 1. Before he says, 
I've called you by name. Look in verse 7. He says, everyone who is called by my name. So he's called you by name this morning if you're in Christ. And he's called you now by his name. It's this adoption concept in scripture. God, it's an adoption. He's calling people and giving them his name. If I were to go down and adopt a child, he could be Ivan Rodriguez or something. And when I adopt him into my home, he's Boulané. He's got my name. He's, he's mine now. He belongs to me. And this is what God has done. He has called them and he has given them his name. Why did he create them? Why did he call them? Look at verse 7. For my glory. God is calling people for his glory. So when you're frustrated, when you're going through spiritual warfare, when you're just fed up and you just, you're tired of, oh, just the Christian life sometimes can wear you down the world and, and the devil and the, the flesh and you're fighting and you're just sometimes you're like, why are we doing all this? You just get these ideas in your mind, but you forget you're doing it for God's glory. When Paul uses these analogies of running a race and fighting a fight, it's all for the glory of God. I remember in uh, sixth grade science class, a bunch of classrooms went out and gathered on the soccer field, and they put a bucket of water in a black bucket on a ladder, and they gave everyone a three-by-five-inch mirror. And the concept was, we're all standing around, a couple hundred students, and directing the light of the sun to heat up the water in this bucket. And they wanted to see how hot it was or to make it boil. I don't even remember. But that image of all these people around this thing, all reflecting light, stuck with me because that's what we do as Christians. We don't have intrinsically anything in ourselves that can give God glory. We just reflect God in ourselves. And the more that we die to ourselves, the more God shines through us. That's how we give God glory. We respond the way he would respond to something. We do good to someone the way he would do good to someone. Now imagine if some of these students standing around were given a three by five piece of cardboard. Well, they wouldn't be able to reflect anything. And you see, the unbeliever always thinks about himself as, yeah, I do bad things once in a while, but I should be okay on judgment day. No, the problem with the unbeliever is not that he just does bad things. He has no ability to give God glory. He's like the kid with the piece of cardboard. There's nothing going forth that, that pleases God or gives him glory. But beloved, we are called into his body to give him glory. So we see that what God has done in the past, he's created them, he's formed them, he's redeemed them. And he's called them by his name. Now we'll look at the future. God's love secured. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Now, This language is symbolic. Waters, if you walk through the waters, I'll be there. Or fire, 
It's called a merism. It's, it's something that encompasses everything. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. If I were to say ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about everyone in the room. Fire and water. God's basically saying, no matter what you go through, I will be there with you. And it's interesting because God is about to judge them and send them into a foreign land, into captivity. And even in the midst of judgment against them, he says, I will be with you. But there's also some things that are interesting to note in this. Even though it's more symbolic, it kind of has some reminders in there of what God's done in the past. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Huh, when did God have them pass through waters? The Red Sea. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Joshua chapter 1. He had them pass through the Jordan River to enter the, the promised land. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember they were in the fiery furnace and they did not get burned? Now that hasn't happened yet, but you can see the, you, you, you get the point. God is with his people throughout trials. And notice what he says, not if you pass through the waters, if you pass through the fire. No, he says, when. So we need not be surprised when fiery trials come upon us, says in First Peter, right? When you pass through, I will be with you. And that is another way God gets glory. When we go through these things and he is with us and we overcome them by his power, and he gets the glory. Notice the emphasis. I call this the self-glorification of God. Notice every verb in this passage, the subject of it, who's doing it, is God. He says, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. I will be with you through the waters. I am the Lord your God. I give Egypt for your ransom. I have loved you. I will give men for you. I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east. I will bring you from the west. I will say to the north, give up. I have created you for my glory. I have formed you. Think God's making a point there? We're so anthropocentric, if I could use the theological term. We're just so man-centered. We think, well, no, there was a certain day I remembered. I believed the gospel. Someone told me the gospel and I believed it. Certainly you did, and you did believe the gospel, but you believed it because you were called. And the emphasis is always on God and what he's doing. God tells them, I've done these things. And look at verse 5. Once again, he tells them, Fear not, for I am with you. Before he tells them, Fear not, I've redeemed you. Now, fear not, I am with you. God is with us. The promise of Jesus Christ coming to earth, what, what was his name to be in the prophecy in Isaiah? They will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. If you are in Christ today, you make up the body of believers, the people of God, and God is with you today. You say, well, I don't feel like he's with me. He is with you. This is what scripture teaches so this war that we're fighting in the world against our own flesh, against the impulses within us, 
against the philosophies of this age that creep in and try to uh, pervert our mind against the things of God. These things we fight against, but we know that God is on our side. He's with us, and it's good news. And he tells the people of Israel this before he sends them into judgment. Before he sends them into a trial, he tells them, I'm with you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Continuing in verse 5, he says, I will bring your offspring from the east. Now, Babylon was east. So you would expect him to stop there because he's been telling them, this nation is going to come and they're going to overtake you and you're going to go into captivity. So you would expect him to just stop after, I will bring you from the east. But he doesn't. He says, I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Now, prophets often have a near and far application to their prophecies. He's telling the people, after the captivity, he's going to bring them back into the land. But the people aren't in the west and the south, and what's going on here? This is a distant prophecy. He's not only going to gather them back after captivity, he's going to scatter them into all parts of the earth and gather them back at the end of the age. So this is something that we're looking forward to. In the end of the age, God is going to gather together this people and bring them back into the land. And we're going to see that, and that's going to be the culmination of the return of Christ. But listen to this gathering and scattering language throughout uh, other scriptures. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, he says, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. Jeremiah also speaks of this. Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-seven. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. Ezekiel talks about it. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. In chapter 36 of Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Dozens and dozens of times God speaks about the nation this way. There's also an application for the church, I believe. I believe God today, through the preaching of the gospel, is calling every tribe, tongue, and nation, peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's gathering them unto himself into his body, which is the church. So not only do you have a near and far application for Israel, you also have an application for the church because God is doing this too. But I don't believe the application obliterates the original intention. I believe the evidence throughout the Old Testament is God is gathering a people, his, his nation Israel, back to himself. You see, there's a hardening that has taken place. God has hardened the people of Israel in the first century as, to, to allow the Gentiles to come in, and you can read about this in Romans chapter 11. But then in the end of the age, he's going to do this regathering work. I like the language he uses in verse 6. He says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. The, uh, the, the nations here are being personified. Uh, 
And God is commanding them to release these people. It's almost like uh, at the Exodus when he went forward and, and, and told Pharaoh, let my people go. So he's commanding these parts of the globe, give up, give, give my people back. Who are they? My sons and daughters. He calls them my sons and daughters. My sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Our son is seven months old now. Uh, I love that boy. <laughs> I've held your babies, you guys. I, your babies are great, I, you know. But my boy, oh, I love this kid. I used to hold people's babies and be like, oh, kid's drooling on me, and how long do I have to do this for? My son, I just want to hold him all day. I love that kid. God uses the analogy of sons and daughters to give us an idea of what our relationship to him is like. He says, these are my sons and my daughters. Now, do you love, you who have children, do you love your children the same way as you love a kid down the street? No, it's different. There's a distinction there. Why? Because this one's yours. You know, it's my kid. And you love your child in a different way. And the Bible teaches the love of God is different for his people. Now we're getting, we're narrowing down, we're getting to the core of this here. Look at verse 3. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. How does God demonstrate his love in the presence? This is the third point, the present, God's love applied. And I'm using past, future, and present because these are the tenses that, that the scripture is using. He provides a ransom for them. Notice what he says in verse 3. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. These are three nations in northern Africa. Listen to what God is saying, and this is so important. He's telling the people, Egypt, look how much I love you. I've given other people in exchange for you. And commentators are divided to exactly what this is speaking about. Some say it's talking about the Exodus, pointing back to the Exodus from Egypt. Some say it's uh, something that happened at a different time in the future. Something's going to happen in the future with Cyrus. I believe, and I like Calvin's view, he's, he, Calvin was teaching that as Assyria was coming down, they destroyed the northern kingdom, and as he was heading for the southern kingdom to wipe them out too, God diverted them to protect the southern kingdom and sent them to attack northern Egypt instead. Whatever the case is, you get the idea. God took one people group and he ransomed them to save another people group. Now, the flesh doesn't like this. We think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. I mean... Why did God spare one and have another nation wiped out? But you've got to realize, we're not talking about innocent people here. Just because God chooses to judge a nation, and he does so for the redemption of his people, does not mean 
That's unjust. They all deserve it. So does Israel. See, we get mad because God spares one when they all should be destroyed. All of them. When uh, Desiderius Erasmus was debating Martin Luther through their writings, uh, Erasmus hated the doctrine of election. He thought it was cruel and unjust and he just despised it. So he writes to Martin Luther and he says, let God be good. That was his cry. Let God be good. And Luther responds with the biblical response. He says, no, let God be God. Some might argue, well, maybe God just looks down the corridor of time and he sees that Israel will believe and so he saves them. Friends, if if God can look down the corridor of time and choose Israel on that basis, he's got horrible vision. Israel is not a faithful people. Quickly, turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 20. Two books to the right. This is Ezekiel in captivity, preaching to the elders of Israel about when God delivered them from Egypt. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 3. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abomination of their fathers. Listen to this. And say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And listen to this. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes had feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. When God called the people out of Egypt, they took the idols with them. Can you picture this? He's parting the sea for them. They're all marching one million, two million strong. And they've got idols in their knapsacks, the idols of Egypt. So God did not somehow choose them because they were any different than the Egyptians. They were all idolaters. It's not about fair, it's about mercy, it's about God's love for his people. Now I want to use an illustration. Every illustration falls short usually when it comes to why God does things, but I think this one's helpful. In the midst of World War II, when the Allied forces were seeking to destroy Hitler and his army, the British intelligence created a machine they called Ultra. 
Now, Ultra was a decoding device that could intercept German intelligence and decode it so they could see what Hitler was going to do. So as Hitler is sending his messages out to his troops and his different posts, they're intercepting these messages using this device called Ultra, decoding them, and they can see what Hitler's going to do. So on the evening of November 14th, sorry, three days prior to that, F.W. Winterbotham, a captain in Britain's Royal Air Force, receives a message. And he shares it with Winston Churchill, the prime minister, and he says, they're going to bomb the city of Coventry in three days. Hitler's next move is to bomb the city of Coventry. And Coventry is about 90 miles north of London. So, what do you think would happen? Well, Churchill could sound the air sirens and evacuate the city, right? On November 14th, 1940, just as planned, 515 German bombers were dispatched to the city of Coventry and they dropped 600 tons of bombs and destroyed it. In one night, more than 60,000 buildings were destroyed, which included 4,000 homes very few buildings remained untouched. In fact, that's part of the cathedral that's still there today as a monument of what happened. There's some famous footage of Churchill a couple days later walking through the wreckage, surveying the destruction with, with other governments and uh, military men. But he knew in advance. He knew they were going to do this. Why did he do that? Is he a monster? Is, was Churchill a monster? Or was there something else? You see, Churchill knew that if they had sounded the sirens and evacuated the city, well, the Germans would know that they're in, intercepting their intelligence. So Winston Churchill chose to provide the city of Coventry as a ransom for a greater good. And the greater good was they could see bigger things that Hitler was going to do and eventually put a stop to him and save millions of lives, which war experts agree that because of this device, Ultra, and the way Churchill handled this, millions of lives were saved. The war was cut, cut off by two years. Now again, these things, they fall short. We say, well, this is a man and, and we're talking about God here. But see, if you didn't have all the information that Churchill was thinking of the greater good, you would think that he was some evil tyrant. And we don't have all the information when it comes to why God chooses. We don't have all the information as to why God sets his love upon a people, why he saves anybody at all. But we know that he's good. We know that he's good, and everything he does is good and right. And we just believe that and we trust it. What about unbelievers? Does this mean God does not, un- does, God does not love unbelievers? I'm going to argue that He has a type of love for unbelievers. And I'm going to use five verses to demonstrate that. Yeah. 
Psalm 145.9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Matthew, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Deuteronomy 10.18 He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And John 3.16 For God so loved the world, and I believe this truly does mean mankind in general, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. These are the only five verses I could find that talk about God's love for unbelievers. Every other verse that I could find in Scripture, if you look at it in context, is talking about God's people. And so this thing that's happening in the church where we take God's promises to his people and then we apply them to unbeliever, I believe it cheapens God's love. Because what we want to tell the unbeliever is, listen, you can be loved by God. You can have the very love of God. There's no better position to be in if you have God's love. There's a group that goes around to porn conventions, and, and I'm thankful that there's people that believe they're called to that kind of ministry. They want to reach out to the, to the people who are in this type of bondage and go into the highways and byways. But their banner says, God loves porn stars. Can you imagine if you're lost in this sin and you're in bondage to it and you're like, oh, whew, oh good. <laughs> My conscience was starting to bother me, you know? Oh good. No. No, listen. The wrath of God abides on those who are not in Christ and we need to tell the world that. God's wrath abides on you. Now you're saying, wait a second, are you telling me God's wrath abides on the sinner, but at the same time, he loves them? That's what I'm telling you. Can God's wrath and his love abide at the same time? Was God's wrath displayed at the cross of Christ? Oh, yes. Was his love displayed at the cross of Christ? Absolutely. We need to point people to Christ because they're lost. And we don't do that by cheapening God's love by telling them all these promises that God has given to us and to use that as an evangelistic tool. I just don't believe that's God's purpose in telling us these things. If I were to tell you that I love every woman in this room in the same way that I love my wife, without distinction, exactly the same way, what would you think about that? You'd say, well, something's wrong there. Why? Because I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife. It's wrong for me to love other women in the way that I love my wife. God is calling people into a covenant relationship with him. And I'll end with the words of Jesus. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. 
and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. If you are not in Christ today, it is not well with you. It is not well with you. God's judgment is coming. Everything is going to be exposed. Every thought, word, and deed, every intention of your heart. But if you are in Christ today, beloved, we have the very love of God. Let's pray. Lord, I was moved this morning singing these words about your great love for us. And there was a point, Lord, that I realized that if I sang the next verse, I would just start weeping, so I had to stop. Love, I thank, Lord, I thank you for your particular love, your love that you've set upon us, that you've given to us, that we might love you in return. And I pray, Lord, that we would exalt you through this love. And that as everyone is thinking of love today, through Valentine's Day, Lord, that the love of God would be preeminent in their thinking, that they would meditate upon these things, Lord, and consider what it is we have in you. We have the very love of God. In Jesus' name, amen.